0: Will anyone ever date me Will I get married? Will my marriage work out Will my marriage have problems? Will we have kids? If we have kids, what if something bad happens to our kids? What if they take a really bad track? Will they make it okay? Will they turn out okay? Right? Um, what if something bad happens? What if I get coronavirus? I need money. I need more money. What do I do with the money I have? What if the economy gets better? What if the economy melts down? What if my side wins in three weeks? Oh, no, but what if my side loses in three weeks? What is going to happen? What if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we live our lives bombarded with a continual set of what ifs. Because life is inherently uncertain and life is inherently drastically beyond our control. So there's a whole lot of really good reasons for you to worry. Amen, let's pray. Now that's not the end of the story, right? There's a whole lot of really good reasons to worry. This world has a lot of messy things in it and a lot of bad things can happen. And what ifs sometimes happen? But there's a lot of much better reasons not to worry. I want to read uh, a section of Luke 12 where Jesus is addressing this very question. Just as it kind of goes along with, with Psalms 46 where we're going to be. Luke 12, Jesus is addressing the issue of worry. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, those nasty scavenger, steal your fruit birds. That's Chris's insert. They neither sow nor reap, and they neither have a storehouse or a barn, and yet God feeds them. Are you not of more value than the birds? And which of you being anxious can add a single hour or to his span of life? If then you can't do such a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, the wildflowers that nobody plants, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you, Solomon, with all of his glory, is not arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field that's here today and it's gone tomorrow, how much more will he take care of you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world, those who don't know God, seek after these things. And your father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old, for uh, uh, with treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where the thief uh, cannot approach and the moth cannot destroy for where your treasure is there your heart will be also and so there's so many reasons that jesus gives us not to worry and we're going to be in psalm 46 and we're going to look at everything falling apart that possibly can fall apart on global cataclysmic levels and the declaration will be simple god is still god and i don't have to be afraid and that's what the Psalm's going to be about. So we're in the middle or kind of towards the tail end of a, a hope for unplanned miniseries. So we hope for the jaded. Why does it work out so easily for the people that are opposed to God? And why are things so hard and so stressful and so challenging for me when I'm trying to be faithful? Uh, hope for uh, the downcast or the depressed. Hope for the sinner that repentance is the way back to life, right? And today, hope for the anxious we get so consumed and so sucked into the things we need, the things we want, the things we fear. And as we get sucked into those things, God disappears from our sight, not disappears. And I think the goal of this psalm is to drive us back to, uh, to to instead of God being removed from our vision and our problems and worries and threats and fears, consuming our vision, to allowing God to consume our vision, which will drive our threats to the to the sides of our life instead of the center and that's what psalm 46 is going to do he's going to show us what fearless faith in god looks like even if the worst thing worst thing that you can imagine happens so let's read it psalm 46 oh, there we go. god is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble therefore we will not fear Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are with us. You are for us. Who can be against us? Who can bring a charge against us? You're the justifier. Jesus died and he rose again. Nothing can separate us from the love that you have for us in Christ Jesus. Nothing in all of creation. Even if we are the sheep that are, get, that are destined for slaughter, nothing can separate us from your love. And so, God, I pray that in the lesser things we worry about, in the lesser things that we are anxious and fretful over, God, that we'd find you're enough. We'd find you're a refuge. We'd find you're our acceptance and justification. We'd find, God, that you're God. And that's enough, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So God is our refuge. Fight for fearless faith. God is our refuge. Fight for fearless faith. So God is our refuge when creation turns to chaos. God is our refuge when creation turns to chaos. There's two questions I want you to to ask as you fight being fearful or anxious or stressed or whatever your version of this is. Question one, what do you worry about? What do you worry about? Is it money? I don't have enough. What am I going to do with what I have? How do I get more? Is it relationships? The one I'm in and its challenges. The one I'm not in, but I wish I was. Will it ever happen for me? Or, uh, or is it going to work out with my marriage? Is it, you know What is it you worry about? Is it relationships? Is it money? Is it your kids? Is it your health? Will I get Alzheimer's? Will I get cancer? What do these tests mean? Why am I having to go back for a follow-up? What do you worry about? All right? and there's plenty of good reasons to worry. But what is helpful, because worry tends to be this all-consuming thing, like everything. I, I can't define it. But when it becomes defined, you'll find that there's probably one or two or three things, and you can start defining versus it being everything. It's something. And then the second question, why do you worry? Not what does everybody worry, and not what does everybody worry about, but why do you worry, and what do you worry about? Right? And so, why is it you worry? And the, the easy answer is well, I don't have enough money. Right? The easy answer is uh, I'm kind of facing some challenges in my current relationship. The easy thing is, uh, you know, the economy's bad and my job's in danger. I, that's why I worry, duh. But Jesus doesn't quite let us off that easy when it comes to our anxious thoughts and our worrying about things does he and so he gives us three kind of things beneath our obvious that that are deeper as to why we worry the first one that he gives us is little faith now that is not that is a gentle rebuke that's not like jesus slapping his disciples in the faith he does that sometimes he doesn't do it in the passage we read right this is that gentle rebuke it's not that you have no faith but that, that God is beginning to dim out of your view, and your problems and your threats and your challenges are consuming your view. So, as one author put it, it's like the battery in your flashlight going out. Uh, your faith is beginning to dim, and it's not showing you God anymore. It's just showing you the stuff that's right in front of your face. And so when Jesus says little faith, what he's saying is your faith is beginning to dim. And, and, and God is beginning to drift from your view, and as God drifts from your view, you're left with the things to worry about. And there's good reasons to worry. The second uh, thing that he he talks about is control and anxiety go hand in hand. So why do I worry? Probably because I want to control. And here's the thing about control. You don't have any. And here's the thing about control and anxiety. Since you can't control things and things are inherently uncertain, you must live with anxiety if you want to control things because anxiety and control go hand in hand, because we don't control anything. I I don't control if I live an extra half day. I don't control if I get to walk another half step, Jesus says. And so if if you can't do much about a half day, why are you worried about all these other things, right? So anxiety and control go hand in hand, and life is filled with uncertainty beyond your control. But it's not beyond God's control. It's not beyond God's Sovereign, ordaining rulership of the universe and of your life. And then the third reason we worry, treasure. Where your treasure is, your heart is. And so if I put my treasure in a bank, this happened, what, you know, when the big financial meltdown, if I put my treasure in a bank and I start reading news headlines that all my savings is in a bank that may go bankrupt, and actually I, I had this, I, you know, the, the place where I, I have like my some retirement accounts and stuff, A headline flashes up one day, and it's like, you know, on the edge of bankruptcy. Well, if my bank that I store the important things of my life in is threatened or is lost, then by definition I have to live in anxiety and fear because the important things are now at threat. The important things of my life, I could lose them right now. Because whether my treasure is, my heart is. And if my treasure can be threatened, and if the deposit vault that I'm securing what I hope in starts to get shaken, starts to get threatened, or if I lose it, worry. But if my, and you know, right, the moth eats it away, the rust steals it, the thief, the thief can get in and steal it. right? But if my treasure is in heaven, if my treasure is deposited in God, then it's not at risk. And I can live a life of lessened, uh, of fearless faith and, and lessened worry and anxiety, and say, so Why do you fear? Is it the dimming of your faith? Why do you fear? Because you're trying to control and grab hold of things you cannot control. And it works sometimes, right? Especially here, because, you know, generally we've got enough money and generally we've got enough stuff, and I can kind of manage my life. You, you feel that way, right? Until you don't. And all of a sudden it's, you know, three midterms in a week and a paper's due and you kind of put that off and that controlled semester all of a sudden gets out of control. Or your, your job has a couple of projects due and you were barely treading water and you kind of put them off and now all of a sudden control is not control anymore. Or is it treasure? The psalmist gives the same lines, but his point is God's enough and only God is enough. Only God will be enough. And so what you'll find is that faith and fear are opposites of each other. As faith goes up, fear diminishes. As, as fear goes up, faith diminishes. And so fear looks down, faith looks up. Let's look at it as we get into the text. Uh, so the intro line is the first time we run into the sons of Korah. So to the choir master, meaning it's a song to be sung, of the sons of Korah. Now, this is my, I researched the sons of Korah for the first time, and I found out something really interesting that I'm going to share with you. At least it's interesting to me. What a great story of redemption it is when you go beneath the surface. Korah in ancient Israel had an infamous, terrible name. Do you know what Korah is known for? Korah and his little group wanted to be priest, but they didn't get to be priests because they weren't in the right line of that family. So they decided they were going to bow up on Moses and Aaron, and they were going to demand that they got a share of the priesthood. And you know what God did? He opens up the earth, swallows them whole, covers them back up with most of their family, and they're gone. Yeah, my dad's Korah. That's not what you want to walk around and tell people as you're living in the, in the nation of Israel. Possibly seven generations later, we meet a guy named Samuel who was of the sons of Korah. But definitely, when we get to the time of David, they are set in charge of the doorkeeping of the house of God which eventually grew into they were the choral leaders of worship for the temple. What a story of redemption. My dad is the guy that tried to take over the priesthood and God swallowed him up in the earth. Yeah, that's me. God has entrusted us to be the vocal choral leaders of worshiping God in the temple. Because it isn't about where you came from. It isn't about who your dad or your mom or your family was about what God places before you and in you. From the sons of Korah, and then he goes into, let me just give you an overview. God is, in this case refuge, God is, so what? What does that mean for me? Because theology is always meant to be practical. Theology is supposed to take what's up there and also apply it to the right here and right now. So God is, so what? I will be fearless. Because God is who God is, I will not fear. And then he will go through the rest of the psalm, laying out the most extreme, the greatest reasons you could have to fear. He'll be laying out the reasons you have to fear from, here on, from there on out, and he'll continue to go back to the declaration, but God is still God, and I will still not fear. That's the governing declaration. So let's, let's jump in. God is. He is telling us the pillar truths in his own life, and, and the nation is going to sing this in the nation's life. If these things are true... Then these things directly attack my proclivity to fear in the bad circumstance I am in, right? And so it's an argument from greater to lesser, meaning if God is 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 big enough to handle the earth falling apart, then He can probably handle our national tr- squabble, and He can probably handle the smaller personal that are facing my life today. If God can handle an enemy that has besieged the city of Jerusalem and and we're going to die if something doesn't happen, then he can probably handle the smaller battles that we face. And if God can handle the whole earth getting melted down, and if God can handle all of the earth becoming a desolation and all of the world is ending for all time, if he can handle that greater, then he can handle my stuff, our stuff. Right? So it's an argument of it. If he can handle this greater stuff, he can certainly handle the, the littler stuff, not to diminish it, but the littler stuff that we're that we're facing. And so God is what are the pillar truths that he's going to say, If I'm going to put these in place. And if these stay in place, then I will be fearless. God is my refuge. That is, God is a place of security God is a place of shelter against danger. He's a place that I can run into and whether it be natural calamity, come across it, I can bunker down there, and the storms can hit it and, and it won't take over, or if it's if it's enemies coming in, he is a place that I can go, I can sit in there, and I can be pounded by enemies, but the enemies can't get to me. And I think it brings up an important point. That does not mean that there will not be dangers that attack against his life. It doesn't mean life won't hurt. It doesn't mean any of that stuff disappears. In fact, it's precisely because life hurts, life is uncertain, there are dangers in the world. It's precisely because of that that a refuge is needed in the first place. Like, I don't bunker down on sunny days, right? And so God is a refuge. He is a place to run into and secure myself when danger or challenges beat up against my life. So there's somewhere I can go and sit and be stable when hardship and challenges come against me. God is my refuge. God is my refuge. Not God plus the economy is my refuge. Not God plus a college degree is my refuge. Not God plus my savings account is a refuge. Not God plus the right government being in place is my refuge. God is my refuge and God alone and God is enough. So where are you running into to bunker down when challenges face your life? Are you running into God? Are you running into God plus a little bit of these other things that you patch together? I don't know about you, but I tend to not run there first. And if we want to live a life of fearless faith, you run there first. God is my refuge. He is a place to go and hide, to to, to shelter. But God is also my strength. By the way, there are saints who have put this to the test. If you've read through your Old Testament, there are more than a few saints who have tested to see, Is God enough if I lose everything? There's a guy named Job, if you've ever read about him. And he loses everything. His kids die. His property is plundered. He is left broke. And his family is dead except for his wife. And that's probably more challenging than than not. So in chapter 1, the Lord gives. The Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 2, and here's why I said, not because wives are at all bad. They're wonderful to have around in challenging times. This particular one's a challenge. So it keeps happening and he keeps losing and then it finally gets to a place where his wife is like, "Would you just curse God and die already?" So not only have I lost everything, now I've lost the only person in my life support that I got left. Curse God and die." And he's like, "Shall I not receive evil from the Lord, or if I receive good from the Lord, shall I not receive evil also?" There's people that put God to the test, is he enough? And he's been enough. And you can put him to the test. And he will be enough for the worst what if. Which means he'll be enough in the, in the other what ifs that you face and that you nag at your soul. And then God is a strength. God is a strength. That is, he is active, empowering for those who are too weak or too small to do anything about it. And So this is an active he gives you the power to go back out from the shelter and face whatever you face. Go back from the shelter and go face the world, the dangers, the problems and the challenges. You don't just have to stay here anymore because He's strength and He will give you courage and He will give you power even though you're weak and even though you're frail, He'll give you power to go back out and face life and whatever life has in front of you. He's a, he's a refuge and He's a strength and He's a very present help in trouble. God is ready to... And near to you. God is ready to hear from you. God is ready to help you. God is ready for you to call out to him. God is ready to jump in. And be the help. Now his definition of help. Not ours right. He is ready. Very present it says. In fact He's far more ready to help us. Than we are to ask him for help. Have you noticed that? The first thing that you do. And the first thing that I do. When Something happens in my life when something gets threatened when i'm worried when i'm anxious when i'm fretful When something bad really happens or when i'm just worried something bad may happen. What's the first thing I do? Let me talk about it. How can I solve it? How can I fix it? Can I be proactive? do Do I have enough money to cover it? But what if god is a very present help in the middle of trouble and it's meant to go to him first Before my solutions first and that's a way to live in fearless faith as opposed to anxious and, and worried and toilsome. Because he's a very present help in trouble. God is our help. God is enough. I was reading in Psalm this week. I'm not quite done. If you are, good for you. If you're not, keep going. Psalm 127, uh, 2 this week. It said, It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved one sleep. I mean, yeah, work... Money, the stuff attached to that is probably one of the top things we worry about in life. And so we can get up early and work harder and go harder and stress and run and get on the hamster wheel and and then we can stay up late. And if I just stay up late and work a little bit more, it's going to work out. And if I just go harder, eating the bread of anxious work, not hard work, but anxious work. And what's the promise apart from that? God gives sleep. To the ones he loves. I can rest. I can work hard and rest as opposed to work anxiously to try to figure it out on my own. God is a refuge. God is a strength. God is a present help in trouble. So what? What a great theological statement. I think I'll print it in the bulletin. No. No. What a great theological statement for you to apply to your life because we live with anxious, fretful, and uncertain hearts and emotions. What a great thing to live out. So, therefore, because those things are true, not because they're true on paper, but because they're true of God, I will not fear. Because God is refuge, because God is strength, and because God is a helper who is present and ready. I will live in fearless faith that those things are true. I will not let myself be swept away by anxiety. I will not let myself be swept away by what if. I will not let my mind turn into this chaotic jungle fighting for, uh, for some stability because I will believe these things are true. And it's clear the situation that he says this in is a situation that is really challenging. He, he's not, they're not singing this song, and this song wasn't originally written because everything's going great right now. It was written as a direct response, and we don't know the exact historical situation as we do with some psalms. It was written in direct response to a historical situation where there is a threat and a danger. And it's the kind of threat and the kind of danger that usually has sharp things that they want to stick in you or throw at you or or aim at you through a bow and arrow or or, or dangers that want to starve you out of the city so that they can take you over. But God's still a refuge. God is still strong. God is still ready to help. I will not fear. And then he begins from here and goes through the different circumstances that could cause it. And so... God is, so no fear despite whatever happens, and then he points to these natural phenomena, right? And it's very cataclysmic, and it's very dark, and it's very scary, the imagery that's written in these next couple of verses. It's creation being undone, right? If you go back to Genesis 1, creation was this chaotic, formless, watery place that God formed and fashioned into what was good And good for mankind. And if you think about the the nation of Israel's redemption, the nation of Israel's birth, it was God redeemed them, chose them, brought them out of Egypt, and how did he deliver them? Backs up against the sea, much bigger, stronger army, biggest one of, of the of the age, right in front of them, no hope, no way out, and then by water, opening up with massive walls of uh, probably pretty terrifying if like the water is up as high as the ceiling on either side of you and it's like I'll, You know if this holds great, but if not And it is that water that covered back over egypt when they tried to pursue israel and it was through water He delivered them And now look his creation is doing it again And you think about like what are the strongest most stable things you can think of well, we got the earth Like that's really you, you just put your feet on solid ground. You got the world but then companies use it in their logos. The mountains are like symbols of strength, symbols of stability, symbols of things like if I can just get on the mountain, if I can invest my money with the rock, then everything's going to be good. But what happens in the text? The earth gives way, the ground breaks up from under you, and the mountains like dump over into the ocean. Everything that's stable and not supposed to shake, shakes. Melts away. Violence and chaos. And then the seas, it's almost like the imagery of an earthquake that has caused a tsunami. And so the the ground is shaking and the waters come up in this massive wave and just crush over the earth. And if, if that's happening, you should be afraid. Unless God is your refuge. And God is your strength. And God is a very present help in trouble. There's no shortage of lesser Challenges within creation that are scary. News that a hurricane's coming and it's about to go over. It's not. I'm saying when it happens. Right? I should be afraid like hurricanes coming. I don't like snakes. Hopefully you'll join me in that. Like I'm terrified of snakes. I don't want to run into one unless I can shoot it because I don't even want to get close enough with a shovel. Spiders. <laughs> Whatever it takes to get without to get you, I'll take it. Spiders, you know, I'm afraid to leave the house, sickness and illness within me. Like there could be cells growing within me right now that, that are going to that are, that are be really dangerous to my life. My mind could be decaying right now. There are so many things within the created world that like I, should, I can fear. I, I should fear. There's so many things you face that could tempt you to just be worried. Like what does this mean? What does that person's look mean? What, what, what are they whispering about? If I don't have to fear if the earth melts away through a massive earthquake and the mountains fall apart, then can God be enough for those nagging, anxious questions that I'm going to face? Can God be enough? Here's the thing about anxiety. It is a cue to turn you back to God. It is something in your life and something in your heart that is alerting you that God has become distant from your view, and something else is taking His place. And so when you find yourself anxious, when you find yourself worried, let that be a cue. Oh, where has God grown dim? Where is the where is the flashlight of my faith running out of batteries? Where do, Where do I need a fuller picture of God in the middle of this? Because God is... And if God is who God is, I can live without fear. The second step, God is our refuge in the face of enemies or national calamity. God is our refuge in the face of enemies or in the face of national calamity. And so another question, how does anxiety show up in your life? How does it show up in your life? For some, it's like this this vague, undefined uneasiness. I just just don't feel settled. I'm just a little bit worried. It's something nagging at me. For others, it's full-on, like, panic. For others, it's obsessive thoughts. Like, I can't stop thinking about what they said. I can't stop thinking about how I answered. I can't stop thinking about this issue. And for others, it's stress, frustration, anger. I get mad. I get stressed. I get tense. How does it show up in your life? Because, again, if you can name it, what is it? If you can say why... And then you can begin to recognize it when it shows up. Then you're in a place where it can cue you into the fight. Uh, One of the authors I was researching uh, quoted Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And his imagery was this. Anxiety, worry, stress, whatever the word you put on it is... It is like the, the walls of your mind have been broken down and that there are rioters running through the streets of your mind, like breaking into every building of your mind, right? And it feels so chaotic because it's like this, this riot running through the streets of your mind. And what we can do is we begin to recognize what, and we begin to recognize why, and we begin to recognize that's what's happening. Like, this isn't something out of control. This is an area, one of the walls of my mind is broken down. We've got to build that thing back up. With, with truth, you can start fighting back, re walls, letting the walls close in to where less and less of the streets of your mind are overtaken. Now, none of this is simple none of this is easy, right? We don't minimize these things. But what we're able to do is start shoring them up so that it happens less, so that it happens less intensely, so that it happens for shorter amounts of time. We're able to start seeing... Uh, order be restored quicker and, and, and it be dissolved less. God is our refuge in the face of enemies and natural calamities. Look at this. So it follows a similar pattern. God is. Here's the trouble or the danger, and then it will end with a refrain. And so it, it, it starts with this very different imagery of water, doesn't it? We've just seen water that was like throwing the earth into commotion and melting mountains down. And now we're going to see like this gentle, life-giving river. There is a river that makes glad the city of God. There's this flowing stream running through the, uh, through the city, giving us all that we need. It's life-giving, and it's, and it's gladdening, but it doesn't mean all is well because the scene shifts. In fact, what I would say the scene is likely is that there are enemies outside of Jerusalem besieging it, and they've got walls that keep them safe, but there's only so long that you can live without food and water, right? There is a river running through the city with enemies all around it, supplying us life-giving water. There's a river that makes glad the city when she's in danger. The city of God, the holy habitation of God, Jerusalem, the place where God's glory dwells, the place where God chose to place His presence on earth in the midst of His people, the place that God chose to be special to Himself, Jerusalem. There's a river that makes glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. You know how little bitty Jerusalem is in the grand scheme of the nations of the world? Like it's a speck. But God is in the midst of her. Because God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. I want to point out a word because it's not as obvious in the translation. So you've got the earth, or you've got the mountains, symbols of strength and stability. You can't move a mountain. But in verse 2, what happens? The mountains will be moved. Into the sea. And then you go from here and you see the nations, why are the, the nations are raging and the kingdoms are tottering. The word for tottering means moved. And so when I look at the nations, they're bigger than us. There's more of them than us. They're stronger than us. Surely nothing can take down the nations. The nations tottering is the same word for moved. The nations will be moved. The mountains will be moved. Everything out there that's strong and powerful will move. But what won't move? Little bitty, nothing city called Jerusalem. Why? What makes her different? The only thing. It's not her walls and it's not her army. The only thing. God is in the midst of her. So she will not be moved. In fact, what we see about the city of Jerusalem is Ezekiel recounts it. God has to physically depart his glory from Jerusalem before it is possible for Babylon to take it into captivity. It is his place of choosing. It is the place where his glory is. It's the place where his presence is. It is the place where the joy of all the earth. It is the place where the nations will flood their riches in to pay tribute to God through the city of Jerusalem. It is the place that describes the heavenly new city. It will be a new Jerusalem. Let me read for you. Um, I'll just do Revelation 21 for the sake of time. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more, if you recognize a lot of those images from what we've just read. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will not be any more. God has chosen as special. God has placed his presence there. Now let's do some translation work. In the Old Testament, Jerusalem and the temple were a place that represented and housed the presence of God on earth and the display of God's glory, the visible, tangible place of God's glory on earth. But in the New Testament, it moves from a place to a person. It moves to the person of Jesus Christ. He says, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. He doesn't mean the physical when He says, John says, he's speaking about his body. So now, the presence of God among his people is in the person of Jesus. The presence of God among his people, the glory of God among his people is seen in the person of Jesus. We beheld his glory as the glory is only begotten of the Father. full of grace and truth, a place became a person. But it doesn't stop. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know? You, church, are the temple of God in which the Spirit dwells. Do you not know, church, that you're the sanctuary? Do you not know, church, you're the holy place? Glory of God dwells, the presence of God dwells in you. And then in chapter 6, do you not know individual believer? That you are the temple of God in which God is, dwells by the Spirit. You house the glory of God. You house the presence of God. On earth among his people again. And so what does that mean? The nations of the earth will move. The mountains of the earth will move. You don't have to. You will not. Why? Because you're strong or you're good? No. Because you're pretty and successful? No. Why will you not move? Because God is in the midst of you. By the way, that's good news. Just in case nobody knew. All right. And so he goes in and he says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved despite the fact that there are enemies outside the gate. Right? The nations are raging outside the gate. But God is going to help. At the, at the earliest time, the dawn will break and it's going to help. Why do the nations rage in the kingdoms? Or the nations rage and then the kingdoms totter. What we see is two forms of judgment happen. Judgment one is the natural consequence judgment. Right? So the nations are raging, and when you rage and when you are evil, evil carries with itself the natural seeds of its own destruction. It it dismantles itself. Right? And so there's this raging nations which makes them inherently shakeable, or this raging of, of the wicked that makes them inherently shakeable. And then there's another kind of judgment, though it's the direct judgment. God just speaks, and it all melts. It is the direct word and work of God that created the world that will also dissolve the world and all of his enemies. And if you're a parent, you know this, right? There's so many times you look at your kids, and you're like, I wouldn't do that. Don't do that. You're going you're gonna to hurt yourself. Don't do that. And yet they have to do the flying flip to the couch. And they bust their head on that wooden piece on the back that the pillow doesn't quite cover. And they're lying on the floor crying crying. And merciful Chris, you know what he says? I told you not to do it. That you'd hurt yourself. It's the natural consequence of not listening to wisdom. And the same thing is true, like in your relationships. There hopefully are people in your lives like I wouldn't do that. And if you listen to them, you're going to save yourself some bumps and bruises and cuts. And if you don't, you're probably going to earn some bumps and bruises and cuts. That's just natural consequences. But then there's times you have to spank your kids, and there's times you have to take their phones away, and there's times you have to ground them and do all those things. That is direct consequence, direct judgment. And you see both happen in this text that leads to the refrain that will happen here in verse 11 that ties us back. God is a refuge and strength, so I won't fear. God is with us. God is our fortress. What does that mean? I won't fear. And then the last step. God is our refuge during global upheaval and final judgment. God is our refuge during global upheaval and final judgment. What secures you? Not you. What secures you? Your abilities and strength? No. What secures you? What makes you acceptable? Not you. Only God. Only God, by the sacrifice of his son, makes you acceptable. Only God, because of His goodwill towards you, because of His salvation over you, only that makes you acceptable, only that makes you unmovable, only that makes you secure for whatever stuff comes. Have you ever put your faith in Jesus alone? Because God is this, but He's only this for His people. He's only a refuge for His people. He only accepts His people. He only sets His love on His people. Have you ever... Realize that your sin separates you from a holy God. Have you ever been convicted of that and, and felt that and felt the hopelessness of that and then seen Jesus? And put your faith in Jesus as your only hope, your only refuge, so that you're saved. Because all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is He who secures us by His work and not ours. And so what if the global upheaval, and what if the final judgment comes? There's some keys to remember. And I think it kind of pulls together a lot of what I've already been saying on the back of your bulletin. Uh, I would encourage you to, to walk through that if that's something, you know, you struggle with ongoing anxiety or, or if you're just in a season of challenging circumstances or whatever it is. Uh, there's a few keys to remember, many of which we've covered and a few that, that I'll just add on here. And so what promise of Jesus speaks to you? I'll just start with moving forward from there. You're not going to remember 20 things about God when stuff happens. But in the middle of what you struggle with, what you're anxious over, what you're tense, what you're frustrated over, in the middle of that, there is one or two or three things about God that are very specific to you. Look for those. Write those down in a prominent place. Keep them in a place that you can go back to and remind yourself of. So as as the flashlight of your faith dims and God begins to disappear, it turns the light back on. And then two more. Go to your Father. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of God. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. He cares about what you care about. And you can go and dump all that junk on him. It's not too small and it's not too big. You can go dump all that on him and you can just leave it right there. God, you care for me. You care about what I care about. Let me just leave this here. And then the last one is give. Do something helpful. Care for somebody. Give yourself away. Because one of the ways we break this self-consuming cycle is that we begin to be a self-giving cycle instead. All right, so let's move in as we come. Behold the works of the Lord. God, where does time to go? Okay, so behold is a word that, that um, mainly focuses on see with the inner eye or see with the eye of faith. Come and gaze with the eyes of faith on the marvelous works of God. Come and gaze with your inner eye to see what God has really done that that doesn't look on the surface like it's there and doesn't look like on the surface He's working. But with the eye of faith you see, here's what God has done. Here are the works of the Lord. And then what you see is a scene of, of complete peace. But a scene of complete peace that looks very different than what we would think because it's a scene of peace at the end of judgment. He's going to take the earth with all of its threats, and he's going to wipe it bare into a desolation. Desolation, like a wilderness, uh, nothing. That big old earth that's so scary. And then he's going to like, you know, I'm a Vikings fan. Not football, but like uh, Vikings, the show. Uh, Last Kingdom, like anything with swords in it, I'm a fan. And at the end of a a massive battle scene, you see bodies and you see broken uh, shields and you see spears lying around and you see swords lying around everywhere. And you just look at this massive scene of destruction. But you know what else is true? Peace is in place now. A peace through victory. And so when God when this imagery is like God is going to shatter the spear, God is going to burn the chariots. In Isaiah it's a much kind of softer more positive image. They're going to beat their swords into plowshares because you you won't learn war anymore. You won't need to practice war anymore because peace has dawned and, and, and the war to end all war, wars has happened. But here he says it and it's, we've just burnt it's this burnt chaos after a battle, but it's after the last battle where peace will now reign forever. And that's what you're looking at. And so he makes wars to cease, but he makes them to cease by having a final war. Revelation 19, sword coming out of Jesus' mouth kind of war. that ushers in a new era of forever peace. And then God speaks. Be still and know that I am God. Now, he may be speaking to the nations with all their raging and tumult. Just be still and be quiet. But he's probably most likely speaking to us, to his people. Be still. Relax. Be confident. Be at peace. Why? Because you know that I'm God. And by God, I mean God, not like a little tribal God and not like a little area of life God, but I'm God. And if you know that I'm God, you know what it will do in your life? It will allow you to be still. If you don't have to be God anymore by controlling your world, if you don't have to be God anymore by controlling your finances, if you don't have to be God anymore by, de- by controlling and forcing your relationships, guess what you're free to do? You're, let- you're free to let him be God and you be still. That's how this thing works. And then look at it. The very things that we are most afraid of that are most threats, that are the biggest challenges to our life, Are the things that will ultimately result in his glory and praise. I'll be exalted by those nations that are raging. I'll be exalted by that earth that is upheaval and and tumult and falling into the ocean. I'll be exalted by the things that that are dangerous and that are challenging. The very things you worry about are things that God can be glorified through. And you can be still because of that. And then with more force he closes with the refrain. If this God is really God, the God who speaks and the earth melt is really God, if this God who will be exalted over the nations, if this God who has a war to end all war, if this God who's going to burn the mightiest weapons of war down and let them lie all over the ground, if this is God, my God, he's with me. The As Romans said, he's with you, he's for you. Who can bring a charge against you? And he's my fortress. And if this kind of God is my fortress... What's true? No fear. Fearless faith because in God who is God. That's what we see here. And so be still long enough to see the works of the Lord. Be still long enough to see with the eyes of faith that God will be exalted by every single thing you face. And he'll be enough for every single thing you face. Be still long enough to know that he is a fortress that is a strong enough encampment to... To secure you through the worst "what if" that you can imagine, and certainly for the "what ifs" of your heart today. A few practical things as we as we wrap up: identify your anxiety as we've talked about, name it, list it. One of the worst things about anxiety in general, or stress and frustration in general, is it feels so infinite and overwhelming. And then when you begin to begin to name it, you say, no, no, it's finite. It's definable. It's, it, it, it's, I can get my mind around it. Second, look to and run to the Father. Worry is a sign of forgetting. Worry is a sign of dimming faith that is no longer letting me see God. It's only letting me see the problem. Or a lot of times not even the problem, the potential problem. And so if you'll take that... As a cue to run to God in the middle of it, to run, to look to God in the middle of it, what you'll find is, okay, now light's starting to shine and God's getting bigger and my problems are starting to to either, one, they're not really problems or or they're only potential problems that I can't do anything about because they haven't happened yet or that they begin to be defined by something that's smaller than the God who I'm looking at right now. The last thing I'd encourage you, Psalm 60, keep going or start back. When you read this book, you're going to see so much of who God is, so much of what God has done and what God has accomplished, so much about real humans like you who have walked through real stuff like you who found God to be enough, and you're going to find as you read that, you're reading a book of our own experiences or a book of so many praiseworthy things about God that you can stick into your arsenal of fearless faith. Not fearless faith because you work it up and you're strong, but fearless faith because God is all that he says he is, and it's all true. And so, what if? What if? What if? What if it happens? Is it going to happen? I don't know. It might. But God knows. God is enough. And you can live in faith. You can live in the fearless kind of faith. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we, we pray and we cast our cares upon you again. We're so fretful. We're so easily stressed and disturbed. We're so easily sunk by the opinions of others or or the perception of the opinion of others. get so worried about stuff. But we want to stop right now and throw that on you again and remind ourselves that you care for us again. To remind ourselves that you are a refuge and you are a strength and you are very present to help. You're in us. We don't have to be moved by this stuff. All the way into eternity, we don't have to be moved. So, God, I pray you would deliver my brothers and sisters and myself from anxious fretting. That you would deliver my brothers and sisters and myself from fear, worry, and anxiety. Oh, it's your good pleasure to give us yourself. And you're enough. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.